Good evening, everyone. Um, it is good to be here again tonight, and I am thankful that we can continue with our study of um, of Ephesians, um, and we're in the in chapter five tonight. We came up to verse twenty one last week, so um, we will um, start off in um, verse. 22 tonight um, so you can open to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22 um, now just as a as a recap um, from um, from last week we ended off in verse 21 which says submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God now um, we when we get to, or let me say, in this section, we're going to get to Christian relationships, right? So I gave you the breakdown last week, and in that breakdown from verse 22, we get into Christian relationships, or the, the marriage walk is what I called it, because that, that's what we'll be dealing with at the end of, of chapter 5. But then as we get into chapter 6, we're going to be dealing with um, children and their parents, and also masters and their servants. So this whole section is about Christian relationships. So that's what we're going to get into this week. Um, now, the approach to all Christian relationships we find in verse 21 is one of submitting ourselves to one another in the fear of God. Because we fear God, we serve each other. We submit to each other. We um, we have that servant's heart that we saw in Jesus Christ. And we do, that's the one reason we do it, and also out of reverence or fear for God. And um, the first relationship, like I said, will be about marriage, the second about children, and the third about employer and employee. But note that all these relationships are prefaced by your individual walk with the Lord. Your individual walk with the Lord. You putting off and putting on. That's what we looked at. And walking in love. And walking in light. So the putting off was chapter 4. The walking in love and the walking in light was last week. And so before we get into how we deal with one another. It starts with how oh, your personal walk with the Lord. So don't try and fix the relationships um, around you. By primarily focusing on those relationships, but also first focusing on your personal walk with the Lord and then transfer that changed heart because of a personal walk with the Lord to your relationships. And I think it's just important to preface that um, all relationships, these ones we're going to talk about now, starts with a personal walk with the Lord and then also um, in, in reverence of God and also following the example of Jesus. So I think that's just good groundwork before we get into the rest of these Christian relationships. So let's, um, before we get into verse 22, let's just have a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this evening, Lord. <clears throat> I certainly have and have had a lot on my mind today, Lord, but I want to put all of that aside right now. And um, I want to come ask you, Lord, that you would fill each of our um, hearts with your with your presence, Lord, help us to um, have ears to hear, Lord. Help us to um, to um, quiet our hearts and 
our minds, Lord, that we may focus on you and you alone, Lord. We, we thank you so much that we have your word. We thank you, Lord, that we can study it. And Lord, I ask that you would please guide us through it, Lord. These things that we'll be looking at tonight are very, very relevant to everyday life, how we treat one another, um, especially those who are married and have kids, um, but those also who are preparing um, to be married or to have kids one day. Lord, I ask that you please guide us and may we all learn something from tonight as we um, endeavor to to conduct ourselves in all our relationships in a God-glorifying way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, so verse 22, Ephesians 5 verse 22 says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Now I want to remind you as we get into it about verse 21, God has given, talking to the husband, uh, talking to, yeah, he has given me this position of authority over my own wife, right, as a husband, so that I can minister to her, to show her what submission looks like. So don't forget about verse 21. The wife, yes, is supposed to submit, and we'll look at that now. But don't neglect verse 21. It is of utmost importance. You have that position of authority over your own wife so that you can minister to her. Now it says in verse 22 that wives should submit themselves, submit yourselves. So husbands, it is not your job to make sure your wife submits to you. Wives living in submission to God's will should want to submit in obedience to God. You'll see that in the, at the end of verse 22 where it says, as unto the Lord. They should want to submit because they are in obedience to God. And wives, as long as your husband is not asking you to do something that will disturb your obedience your submission to the Lord, in other words, something sinful, essentially, submit to your husband. So as long as your husband is not asking you to do something sinful, something that will break your, your, break your obedience to God, um, you have to submit to him. Now, ladies, don't confuse, I don't like what my husband decided for is doing something sinful or asking me to partake in something sinful. There's definitely a difference between I don't agree or I don't like what he's deciding and he is asking me to do something sinful. So don't 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 jump to that conclusion because it's actually in those things where it's not sinful but you disagree where submission is really important. Now um, with this in mind um, can you see why it is of utmost importance that you are not unequally or that you are not equally yoked with unbelievers. Um, because if you are equally yoked with an unbeliever, then you have a problem. You are pulling at the same yoke, but the two of you are not equal. And um, you are not following the same purpose. You are not follow, you're not, both not serving God. And so this creates a lot of issues and it makes submission a lot more difficult. So unmarried ladies, can you trust the man you're dating to make godly decisions under whom you can willingly submit yourselves one day? 
That's the question you need to ask yourself. And unmarried men, look for a lady who is concerned with obeying God and willingly submitting herself to God's will. Because if you find a woman who is pursuing God's will and pursuing obedience and submission to God, then if you fall in line as almost, I want to say, mediator, the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the man, then she falls in line with that chain of command or you fall in line. And but if the man is not in submission to God and, and, and the lady is not in submission to God, you are setting yourselves up for a disaster. Now, verse 23 says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. Now, the husband is the head of his wife. It doesn't say that men are the head of women. All right. Um, that is a that is taking that authority beyond its scope. Um, also, in verse 22, it said that wives submit yourselves unto your own husbands. All right. There's a, there is an immediate authority to which the woman has to submit herself. And also there is a scope in which the husband is the head. It's not man over woman. It's husband over wife. So I just want to make that distinction. So men, you do not have the authority over women in general. You are the head of your own home. And even there, you are to lead in an example of humility. The example of Christ towards his church. Now, although um, this is a topic for a different lesson, just know that even that structure, the structure where the, can I say, the, 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 the pastor is a head over a church, and even, even that structure has its limitations to the body of Christ. So, Yes, men can have authority over women in general, but once again, it's in the context of the church. It's not this overarching statement where men oppress women. That is an unbiblical thing. Where you have a husband, a loving husband, and a willingly submissive wife, that is a natural created authority by God. And then you also have the husband being, or the father being the head of the home. That's a natural authority given by God, but it has its bounds. So don't go stretching your authority and make it almost, I want to say, a purely gender-based thing where man has this overarching authority over all women. It's a husband over a wife. It's a father over his house. It's a pastor over his flock. It doesn't just stretch further and further um, beyond that. Now, while I've opened this can of worms, let me also say that the man isn't greater in value, purpose, ability, spirituality, anything like that than the woman. The, the man isn't greater, but they are different in the role that they perform. Different, not better. The role of a man and a woman is designed to be complementary. The one filling the other's shortcomings and jointly bringing out the best of one another together. 
They're supposed to complement one another, not be in competition to one another, not the one trying to do the other one's thing, complement one another, fulfilling the other's shortcomings. It's not about value either. It's not about purpose. It's not about ability. It's purely different roles to ultimately um, fill the, 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 the image of Christ and his church. That is why there is divide in roles and a hierarchy, not because of difference in, in, in inherent value, but because of the complementary nature in which God designed man and woman to function together. Now, at the end of verse 23, it says, and he is the savior of the body. Savior of the body. As Christ delivered the church from the dangers of sin, death, and hell, so too the husband should provide and protect and lead his wife in truth and blessedness. All right. So he's the savior of the body, Christ, the savior of the church. And as Christ is that head and that savior of, of the church, so too the husband should lead and love um, his wife and in a sense be that, um, that guide um, in the home and in that relationship. Now, verse 24, it says, Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, Paul summarizes the wife's submission role by showing us that it must look like the way the church submits to the Lordship of Christ. Okay, so as the church submits to the Lordship of Christ, so too the woman should submit to the, the Lordship of um, her husband. That statement in itself is worth an entire study, but the idea behind it should give um, the husband and a wife a lot to think about. Because men, think about Christ's example as head of the church. It's not a dictatorship. It's not forceful. It's not proud. It, rather, it's, it's patient, it's pure, and it's full of loving guidance. That's the way Christ loves the church, with patience, with purity, with goodness, with loving guidance. That's how Christ um, is Lord over the church. Now, the husband, apply that to yourself. You don't have this dictatorship, this proudful, this arrogant, this power you are to lead by that example as Christ leads his church. Um, and ladies, like the church willingly operates under the headship of Christ, so too you should operate willingly under the headship of your husband. Now, when I say that, I think some ladies, I'm not accusing anyone, but some ladies may say that, but my husband is not living godly. Okay, but verse 24 says in everything that you need to submit or be subject to your own husband in everything. Now, as I've already said, this does not refer necessarily, this does not refer to sin, but you can open to first Peter, first Peter chapter three, first Peter chapter three. And I want to show you a verse here. First Peter chapter three. So. Submitting to your husband in everything, even if he's not godly. Okay? Not, I'm not saying he's asking you to do something sinful. His behavior 
is not right. He's not handling things well, right? Even such a man, you should submit yourselves to. In First Peter chapter three and verse one, it says, "Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may be without the word be won by the conversation." Of the wives. So it says, even if they obey not the word, speaking about the husband, okay, so a husband who is not living according to b- biblical principles, you should be in subjection still, as it says in verse 1. And it says, that they may also, without the word, be won by the conversation of the wives. So it's about your testimony. It's about your testimony. Because through you submitting and treating your husband in a way that he doesn't is not deserving of that is a testimony of christ's love and the grace that has been shown to you which you are now a minister of towards your husband but that's we can turn back to um or actually keep your place in, in, in first peter sorry um i didn't keep my place so i'll go back there but in verse 25 it switches now to the husband Paul doesn't just speak on the wife's attitude, but also the husband's. So, in verse 25, um, it says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Note, submission to the husband and love to the wife are both based on the example of Christ. Submission to the husband and love to the wife are both based on the example of Christ. It says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church. It says in um, in verse 22, it says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the Lord. Constantly, Paul says, do it as unto the Lord, um, by following the example of Christ. So individually, both The husband and the wife should be loving and serving Christ. And in so doing, they humbly serve and love one another. So before you or your spouse point the finger at the other, check your personal submission, your personal walk with God. Now, it says husbands love your wives. This type of love is the the love, the charity we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Go read that in your own time and apply it to your marriage and see how you as a husband, um, how you're doing in transferring or emulating that love that is spoken of there. That is a challenge. So, as if that challenge, the challenge of looking at 1 Corinthians 13 and seeing where you fall short, as if that's not enough, Paul goes on to say, even as Christ. So, husbands, you are to love your wives with the same unreserved, selfless, and sacrificial love that Christ has for the church. Does Christ's love vary based on our performance? Christ's love doesn't vary based on our performance. Does the church always submit and do everything perfectly? No. 
Yet Christ patiently waits and persistently shows mercy and grace. Husbands, your show of love and kindness to your wives should not be based on their performance, not based on the level of their submission. Imagine if Christ treated us that way. That is a real challenge. So rather, men, you should show your, your show of love should be selfless and self-sacrificial. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. 1 Peter 3 verse 7. It says, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them, that is your wives, according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. So, you should treat her with honor and patience as the weaker vessel. And so, we see a beautiful example. If we really look at how we are treated as the body of Christ by our Savior, we have a wonderful example in that as to how we should act mercifully, gracefully, and um, leading our wives in truth. Now, as a side note, I remember reading Ephesians chapter 2, verse 25, way back when I just got saved. And um, reading that husbands should love their wives, but never reading in this context that the wife should love her husband as well. <laughs> and um, I um, actually felt cheated by that because I wanted my wife to love me as well, not just submit to me, but love me. But um, so if you feel the same way in Titus chapter two, verse four, it says that they may teach the young woman, that is the elder woman, teach the young woman to be sober and to love their husbands and to love their children. So there is a command for the woman to love her husband as well. But um, I think naturally um, women or men need that instruction a lot more than women do. Now, it's a general statement. But we are to love our, our wives as Christ loved the church. Now, verse 26. It says, love your wife. Verse 25 says, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. So Jesus did not just come to redeem us, slap his name on us, Christian, and then leave us. To go live our Christian walk by ourselves. No, he came to minister and to continue ministering to us. He ever lives to intercede for us. He is our fellow laborer. He partakes in our sanctification and he helps us grow through the word. So Jesus did not just come and save us and stick his name on us. And in the same way, Husbands, you didn't marry your wife just to make her yours. Slap your name on her and leave her to go through this life alone. It says in verse 26, after Jesus, as Christ loved the church, and it says that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. The, the process starts once that um, person becomes part of the church. So you married your wife. So that you can spend the rest of your days ministering to her as Christ ministers for the church. 
So as Christ works in your daily life to make you the Christian you ought to be, so too husbands should work at their marriages daily to make that marriage all that God designed it to be. The only way that this is possible is if the word of God is central in the individual and the marriage. The only way that this is possible, where these two, where the husband helps his wife to grow and the two are fellow heirs and they pursue God, is if Christ or the word is central in the individual and in that marriage. That's why it says at the end of verse 26, by the washing of water, by the word. The word needs to be central. Verse 27 says that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now, notice the long-term picture. This is Christ's ultimate goal with every member of the body of Christ. He wants that to ultimately, at, at the end of the day, that he might present it to himself a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. That is why he continues to work in us after salvation, that we might be sanctified, that we might be out without spot and without wrinkle. Now, in the same way, the Christian husband's greatest desire for his wife should be that she become perfectly conformed to the image of Christ. Hence, they have the same long-term goal as Christ has with the church. That ultimately, at the end of the day, the long-term picture. Why do you love your wife? Why do you go to the effort of loving her in the way Christ loves his church? According to 1 Corinthians 13. Why do you do that? So that ultimately, you can present her blameless, more conformed to the image of Christ because of the guidance that you give her as a husband. Verse 28 and 29. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. So this is one of the clearest descriptions of the oneness that should characterize the Christian marriage. The impact of every thought or desire of the man is extended beyond the husband to his wife. So the, the impact that every thought or action that the man takes will have on his wife, he takes into consideration. Because they are one. And so what affects, affects the one affects the other. Example. Husbands, ask yourselves, if I do or say this thing, how will it affect her? You ask yourself this because you love her and don't want to do anything that will hurt her. Just like you wouldn't want to do anything to hurt yourself. This is the one flesh idea that is mentioned here. And, and we see that at the end of verse 31 where it says, And they shall be one flesh. So they're one flesh. They're, they're joined together. And so that means that the husband needs to consider 
how his deeds not just affect him, but affect his wife because they are joined together. If I naturally care for my own well-being, okay, that's what it talks about in verse 29. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. So if I naturally care for my own well-being in that I feed myself when I'm hungry, I sleep when I'm tired, I exercise to stay wealthy, I should, with the same natural instinct, care for the needs of my wife. The What she needs, just like I have needs, and I fulfill those needs, obviously, if they're not sinful. And so I fulfill those needs because I love myself and in the same way we should we should be aware of the needs of our wives and we should also in the same way we meet our needs meet their needs in whether it is in time whether it is in um, love faithfulness in dedication in guidance in patience whatever it may be we need to minister those things to them and um what is the product of such outpouring of love on the wife? It's love returned. Have a look at um, verse 28. At the end of it, it says, He that loveth himself, loveth his wife, loveth himself. So it's love returned. By you outpouring yourself out to love your wife, the love will be returned. He who loves his wife in the way Christ loves the church brings great blessing to himself from his wife and from the Lord. All right. Another thing on, on verse 29, these two words, nourish and cherish. I think these two words express the two core subdivisions of a husband's love toward his wife. So you have love on top. Okay. That's a general statement. Husbands, Love your wives. And what does that love look like? Firstly, nourish. Secondly, cherish. Nourish and cherish. So nourish means to feed her. In other words, to help her grow and mature in Christ. That's your first responsibility and your first way in which you can show love to your wife. The other way is cherish. That is to provide warm and tender affection and provide comfort and security. So the one I want to say almost is more a spiritual um, aspect in the way that you nourish her in that sense. And the other one is more physical and emotional way in which you take care and love for your wife. So those two need to go hand in hand and the one shouldn't ever be omitted for the other. Nourish and cherish. So may the Lord help us to love our wives in this Christ-like manner. All right, verse 30. It says, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. So, why does the Lord nourish and cherish the church? That's what we dealt with in verse 29. Because we are so intimately connected to him. We form part of his body. For him to neglect us is to neglect his own body. And that's why he nourishes and cherishes his church. Husbands, you should be so intimately connected to your wife that any neglect on your part towards her 
should immediately result in a feeling of personal neglect. Do you see the oneness? Any neglect on her part should result in personal neglect. Because as Christ nourishes and cherishes, because we're so intimately connected, so too the husband and wife should be intimately connected. And that's why it goes to verse 31, where it speaks about what needs to happen for this intimate connection to occur. It says, verse 31, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined, there's that intimate connection, shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh the intimate connection, the one flesh aspect comes into the picture. Now, as you will probably know, this is a quote from Genesis 2.24, where God instituted marriage. One of the first rules that God makes concerning marriage is that a husband should leave his parents and cleave to his wife. This joining, this cleaving is to be sticked or to be glued together, to share an inseparable bond and hence if this bond if this cleaving this glue is torn apart it leaves painful marks on both parties and that's why it's supposed to be never separated just like Christ and his church will never be separated so too the husband and the wife should be a picture of that inseparable, intimately connected bond. It is only when a son has left the care of his parents that this new strong and intimate connection um, can be formed between him and his wife. So husbands who care more for what their parents think or feel than their wives have not, let their, have not left their previous connection and are destroying their marriage. It's not a, I want to say it's not optional. If you want to have an intimate connection with your wife that is inseparable, that is a picture of Christ in the church, that is glorifying to God where you are joined is, you have to leave before you cleave. And that is why in premarital counseling, Pastor Mike does a great job at giving some pointers about how to deal with the in-laws. Um, I would really encourage you to attend this premarital counseling um, when your um, when your time has come for such a for such a um, class. Um, please don't go to him as a single man or a woman. Yeah, and ask for premarital counseling. I don't think that will that will do. But it is very important um, how to deal with your in-laws when it comes to to marriage. Now it says one flesh, they shall be, he shall be joined to his wife and they too shall be one flesh. I spoke of this connection when we looked at verse 28 and 29 and how this should influence every decision that a man takes as he considers how it would affect his wife. But there is more to this phrase. It also refers to a physical oneness that should only exist between husband and wife. I don't think I need to elaborate on physical oneness, um, apart from the fact that it is clearly supposed to be between husband and wife. 
But I think this oneness also has a spiritual meaning. I say this because in verse 30, it speaks about the body of Christ and how we are all members thereof. Okay, so there's a spiritual connection that Paul is making. He's saying that we are part of this body. We're all members of, the, of this. And then he says, for this cause. So because we are all members of this body, he goes on to say, um, in other words, for the cause of serving Christ together, you should be spiritually joined as well. For the cause of, of um, serving Christ together, you should be spiritually joined as well. That's why he says, for this cause. All right. But he also, and, and the spiritually joined, um, I think we, we read it earlier in 1 Peter 3, 7, where it says, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them, your wives, according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as the weaker vessel, and being heirs together of the grace of life. Being heirs together of the grace of life. So that's why that spiritual connection exists between husband and wife, so the two can complement one another to better serve Christ as that new unit, that new one flesh. Um, once again, do you see unity, the theme of unity coming through even in that? Verse 32, it says, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So what Paul is saying, how this spiritual union forms and how the act of consummating marriage leads to one flesh, I do not completely understand. That's why he says it's a mystery. He says, how this union forms and how intercourse leads to this one flesh in the confines of marriage, he says, I can't completely explain that. So I'm really thankful <laughs> because I can't explain it. So I'm thankful that Paul agrees with that. Um, but the same holds true for Christ and his church. Just like this oneness that spiritually and physically exists between husband and wife, the same, Paul says, is a mystery concerning Christ and the church. We know theologically that we are all members of the body and that Christ is in us and we're in him. We know that from scripture. We are all accepted in the beloved and when the Father looks on us, he sees the righteous life of Christ. We know that scripturally. But how that all works, how, how it's made possible, how God makes this a reality for eternity, where I get the righteousness of Christ, and we are members of Christ's body, and Christ intimately cares for the needs of the church because he's taking care of his own body, how, how that works is a mystery. Um, now, I said something earlier about how physical intercourse leads to this one flesh. Now, I don't want anyone to misunderstand me and I don't want this to be extrapolated beyond what I was trying to say. So, let me just clarify what I mean with this spiritual union that exists um, between husband and wife. This does not refer to something like a soul tie um, that forms when you sleep with someone or in the unfortunate event of being raped. There is nothing in scripture that would indicate that there is something like a soul that's tied to another soul forever because of sexual intercourse. 
um, the oneness that exists between man and wife is actually formed biblically by the vows. Um, in, in, in Malachi chapter 2 verse 14, you can actually read about this and how it speaks about the covenant um, between the husband and his wife. And it's the covenant that makes that woman his wife. It's not the, the act of consummating the marriage that makes, that creates this, this bond. So the physical act creates no spiritual bond and consummates nothing if there is nothing, in other words, no vow to consummate. Let me say that again. The physical act creates no spiritual bond and consummates nothing if there is nothing to consummate, if there is no vow that has been exchanged between these two people. So I just want to make that clear in case there was some misunderstanding. Verse 33, it says, Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. So Paul summarizes this section by saying, Nevertheless, so even though we don't completely understand this mystery or know how to apply the fullness thereof, sorry, to our lives, the following definitely forms part of it. The following two things. So nevertheless, even though we don't understand it, these two things we do know and we should apply. And that is that husbands, love your wives with all your being. And secondly, wives, revere, that is to honor in, in high estimation, respect your husbands. So we know, even though we don't understand the full picture and the workings of it, we know that these things hold true and we should apply that to the very least, um, to the best of our ability. All right, now we've looked at... Um, in chapter 5, we looked at verse 1 to 7, how we looked at the walk in love and how putting off sinful deeds and living by a higher standard is to love. So that is the walk in love that we saw in verse 1 to 7. Now, and then we saw in verse 8 to 20, the walking in light and how that having additional revelation through the word and the spirit needs to change the way we walk and change the way we think. Then now we just looked at verse 21 to 20, uh, 33, how that the marriage walk, as God intended it, how God created the marriage um, and how it should look for Christian couples. Now in chapter 6, you'll see Paul continues the, the relational aspect of the Christian's walk. He starts by continuing with the relational aspect, which he closed in, 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 in verse 33 of chapter 5 with a marriage. And then from that, he flows naturally over into, um, I want to call it, so this is your breakdown for chapter 6. Verses 1 to 9 is domestic duties. Domestic duties. And what I mean by domestic is um home, I want to say essentially home or work duties. Um, so the word domestic can mean among those of your household. And that we'll see in verse one to four, um, um, children and fathers and parents and so on. So that's your domestic 
um, aspect, your duty, your domestic duty. And then also domestic can also mean a servant. To have a domestic working for you is to have a servant. And so we'll also see the domestic duty where you are the servant towards your master or where you are the master towards a servant. So verses 1 to 9 are domestic duties. Then verses 10 to 20 is Christian soldiers. Christian soldiers. And then verses 21 to 24 is just Paul's final greetings. 1 to 9, domestic duties. 10 to 20, Christian soldier. Um, and 21 to 24, final greetings. So we're going to try and get... Um, I'm going to try to go up to verse 9, but I think we might stop at verse 4. So let's get into that. All right. Um, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1. You can open, just get in your other hand so long, Colossians um, chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, but keep Ephesians. All right. So verse 1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Obey. That is to submit to a God-given authority of the parent. That is what it means to obey. Is Once again, submission, right? Submit to the God-given authority of the parent. Then it says, in the Lord. So that is to say, in line with God's word. Expecting nothing sinful from you. So you should obey Everything that is in line with God's word. Now, let me just say this from the get-go. We're speaking of children who are at an age who can, who know the scripture and are able to discern between right and wrong um, without the guidance of a parent. Um, we're not talking about two, three, four-year-olds um, knowing this verse and supposedly showing the parent that they what they did is not in line with God's word. It's when it's of an older age. Um, and I think you as parent, obviously, and child should be able to fall in line with that. But okay, so obey is to submit to God's authority. And in the Lord is to, to line up with, if your parent asks the child something that lines up with God's word. And then it says at the end of the verse for this is right. I like how simple that is. Why should you do it? For this is right. It's, it's just right. <laughs> so do it. Um, in Colossians um, chapter 3, verse 20, we have the same verse. It says, Colossians 3, 20 says, Children, obey your parents in all things. Then it says, For this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. It is right. Something that is right will be well-pleasing to the Lord. Um, and something that is well-pleasing to the Lord will be right. And so I think that's just a, a good commentary um, on that verse. So, when we read about disobedience, this, this obedience that children should have towards their parents, this obedience should be in submission to God's given authority when the parent is lining up with God's word because it's the right thing to do. This obedience should be done willingly. The obedience should be done willingly. Have a look at Colossians chapter 3 verse 23. Colossians 3 verse 23 is your attendance verse for tonight. It says, For whatsoever you do, do it heartily. That is, with a good attitude, with willingness. Do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. 
And you'll know from the context in Colossians 3, it's also speaking about servants, it's speaking about parents, it's speaking about husbands and wives. It's the same context as Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. And there it says, do it heartily. So this obeying of child to parent needs to be done willingly. Such obedience to the father and the mother is to honor them. Because that's what verse 2, Ephesians 6, 2 says, honor thy father and mother. Only this type of obedience that is done heartily, willingly, as unto the Lord, can be well-pleasing and can bring honor to father and mother. Now, before I comment further on verse 2, I want to ask the question, why is this obedience such a big deal? Why is this obedience such a big deal? Well, it sets the standard for the rest of that child's life. How they treat authority, whether they respect and obey authority or whether they don't. We are already seeing the effects of a lack of this fundamental principle play out in society around us. We see, we're, well, I don't have to name examples, but just one that's really relevant is the absolute disregard for authority in America currently with the protests and um, just police being accused of things that they're not, that they're not. And so there's just an absolute disregard for the authority that God has put in place. And that stems from broken homes. It stems from homes where parents do not bring up their children in the ways of the Lord, <clears throat> especially concerning obedience. So may it never be said of our children as Christian parents, may it never be said that our children are unruly and disobedient. May that never be said of Christian parents' children. When your child is taught thus from a young age to obey, it teaches them a fundamental principle which will one day be extremely important when it comes to their personal salvation. And that message is the one that there is right and right is rewarded and wrong is punished. Right is rewarded, wrong is punished. They have to get that fundamental principle because if you are, if they one day hear that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and there's not one that doeth good, no, not one, there's not one righteous, there's not one that seeks after God, and all they've been taught their whole life is how good they are, how they are the, the makers of their own faith. If that's all they're hearing, if anything true, anything Contrary to that, even if it's true, gets brought across their path, they're going to kick against it because that's not what they believe about themselves. That's not the worldview that the parent has shaped in that child. So it's an incredibly dangerous thing to have children call the shots in the home. The parent needs to have or execute that God-given authority and the children should willingly obey to that. If children don't understand and respect authority in their lives, how will they ever submit to God as supreme authority? How will they ever understand the just punishment of the children of disobedience, which we've read about in Ephesians chapter 2, these children of disobedience? How will they ever understand the punishment by God if they never face the consequences of their own disobedience? 
If you are a parent or plan to be one, always remember your responsibility in preparing your child's heart and mind for the message of the gospel. Now, verse 2 to 3, it says, Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Verse 3, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. Now, this is obviously a reference to the fifth commandment, which we read about in Exodus 20 or in Deuteronomy 5. And it says it's the first commandment with promise. Not that adherence to the other commandments would not lead to God's general blessing. So the other obedience to the other commandments of God will also lead to general blessing. I'm not talking about prosperity and some worldly blessing. Don't misunderstand me. But rather the obedience to this specific commandment has a promise attached to it. That's all that it's that this verse is saying. And that promise that is attached to this verse is verse 3. That it might be well with thee and thou mayest live long on the earth. In um, in um, Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, it says that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord God giveth thee. Now, that had a specific and unique meaning to the Jews of those days as they had not yet entered Canaan. So it had a sp- very specific contextual meaning to the Jews of that time. But it, all, but it shows us that God places high value on the principle of respect and obedience from children towards their parents. God emphasizes it. He places high value on this virtue. And the parents who teach and the parent who teaches the child this and the child who adheres to the to this will certainly benefit from this as the Lord blesses them. So they will be benefited by adhering to this law that God has put out. And besides the blessing that might come from it, a child who lives in obedience to the guidance of godly parents has a far greater likelihood of succeeding and living long and healthy in this life than those who have no compass and live purely for the thrill and for the things of this world. So that's just a general statement, a rule that I want to say that is just true. Someone who lives according to the instruction of godly parents will generally live a better, longer, healthier, uh, more successful, stable life than those who don't. Verse 4, and I think we'll stop here for tonight. Verse 4, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Now, this obviously applies to both parents and not just the father. But I believe Paul is focusing in on the fathers because men are generally more guilty of this than mothers. Provoke not your children to wrath. Now, one scholar commented on this by saying the following. In the pagan world of Paul's day, and even In many Jewish households, most fathers ruled their families with rigid and domineering authority. The desires and welfare of the wives and the children were seldom considered. The apostle makes clear that a Christian father's authority 
um, over his children does not allow for unreasonable demands and strictures that might drive his children to anger, despair, or resentment. So in the time Paul was writing this, and I think it's true for today as well, the Christian father's treatment of his children and his consideration of his children has to be different than the general father who just lives by the rules of this world. It has to be different. Christian dads, you need to be different. By focusing on being an example and a guide that helps your children grow in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Your focus needs to be different. And I think that makes a lot of a difference in your, the way in which you father. That is to say, when it speaks about the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, it speaks about loving, discipline and instruction. So nurture is loving discipline and admonition is instruction. So dads, are your kids developing a healthy understanding of who God is and what his word says through the way you live and teach them? Are your kids developing a healthy understanding of who God is and what God says when they look at your example and what you teach them. This is a high calling. May we, by the grace of God, be the fathers, these fathers that we are called to be to our children. Now, additionally, I would like to point out, point you to a lesson that Pastor Mike taught quite recently. I can't remember the date, um, but he titled this lesson, I Have No Man. And in this lesson, Pastor Mike mentioned three things every godly father should be towards his children. He said a godly father will be interested in his children. He will be involved in their lives and he will inspire them to pursue God, to pursue holiness, to, to be a Christian the way God expects us to be. So we should never ignore them. And I and because if you do the opposite of interest, be interested, involved and inspire, you will provoke them to wrath and they will most likely have a bad taste of what it means to be a Christian and potentially turn away from the faith. Um Applying these principles that Pastor Mike teach in that lesson will definitely help to bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. So I'll share the link after the lesson and you can have a listen to that in your own time. Now, the next five verses, as I said earlier, um, deal with the final relational aspect of the Christian walk between the servant and his master. But that's quite an extensive study by itself, so I don't want to rush through it. So next week we'll continue from verse 5 and we'll finish the chapter. So next week will be our last lesson in, in Ephesians. And I will also then share the exam questions with you. So, with that being said, um, I, I hope this was good um, for each of you. Um, even if you're not a parent, even if you're not a father, um, or a husband or a wife, I think it is very, very important to know these things before you head into 
marriage before you become a parent. It's very important to to study these things, to apply these things, to 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 write these things on your heart, that you may be able to practice them and prepare for them, um, so that you can be better equipped to be that father, be that mother, be that parent um, to your child. All right, let us pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. I um, Lord, I just want to thank you for your word. Um, what an absolute blessing to have the, this instruction and to know, Lord, that these truths, these truths applied in our lives make all the difference, Lord. Help us um, to live according to them every day. Help us to um, practice these things. Um, bring these, these instructions to our minds as we live our, our walk between our families and also between those we we live with every day at work. So, Lord, I ask that you would please, um, please come help us, Father, to be the Christians that you call us to be, Lord. Thank you for the sound doctrine that we receive from your word. But also, Lord, thank you for the perfect balance that you give um, in showing us how we can apply these things daily and practically. We praise you for that, Lord. Thank you for being intimately involved in our lives for caring for our sanctification and for sanctification, ministering to our needs, Lord. Um, help us to, to grow more and more each day into the likeness of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much, everyone. I hope you have a wonderful evening.